0: Hey everyone, I am so excited about today's episode. I really truly mean that. Today I interview a special guest. Her name is Lisa Mills, and she is the founder of Elephant Origins Tea. I love this for so many reasons. One, I am obviously an elephant lover. If you don't know, I studied African forest elephants for my PhD, so I go gaga about anything elephants. Two, I am a recent tea lover. I have been a devout coffee drinker for years and years and years, but I always suffered from fatigue. So when the pandemic came around, I always actually blamed my fatigue on my thyroid. I have an autoimmune disorder called Hashimoto's, which makes your thyroid underactive. So I've always wanted to do this autoimmune diet. And this diet, I talk about it in episode for it's all about diets for the planet. So this diet you eliminate all everything except for except for certain non-nightshade vegetables, fruits and meats and seafood. So egg, no eggs, no beans, no nuts, no no wheat, no no grains of any kind. Obviously no sugar, but you can drink tea and no coffee too. So anyways, I went for four weeks on this diet, and then you slowly add things back in to see what causes your problems. So my fatigue got a lot better. I wasn't having it after these four weeks. And then the first thing I added back was coffee because I was so excited to have my coffee back. I like tea, but when I wake up in the morning and drink tea, it makes me nauseous. So I actually had to go through like finding what was right for me. And it turns out Yerba Mate tea is not not bad. I like that. And then I also drink the matcha tea with some almond milk. That doesn't make me nauseous. Anyway, long story short, when I add the coffee back in, I found out that coffee was my problem. I was devastated. I loved coffee so much. So I went for a while without drinking coffee. And then I found that there was this coffee that was supposed to be more friendly to people who have sensitivities because I guess there's mold in more conventional coffees. And this was like, it's called New York coffee and it's really special coffee. It's like really pure. Tried that. I still had the same problem. So coffee just doesn't agree with me. So I have had to switch to tea full on. I'm all about tea now. So I love this because it's about elephants. It's about tea. And then thirdly, I love bringing in the business side of things when it comes to wildlife and conservation because so often people think that corporations and businesses are the antithesis of conservation and they have been. I mean, there's definitely genuine problems, but I think that we need to work with these companies and I think we need to vote with our dollars. I think we need to support companies that do good, that still make profits, but that care about things like people and wildlife. So today I talked to Lisa and she is one of those companies. She founded one of those companies, Elephant Origins. So you're going to hear all about the company, Elephant Friendly Tea, what is that? the conservation issues with Asian elephants. And then at the end, we'll talk about the tea itself, where you can get it. Stay tuned for the whole podcast. I'll tell you exactly where you can purchase this awesome tea. I've had it, it's fantastic. Go get it. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Actually, I don't hope. I know you will enjoy this podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, I'm glad to be here. It's
0: exciting. Yeah, I am so excited to have you on here. I am so excited to talk to you about your company. So why don't you first tell us uh, about yourself, your background, and then you can tell us about your company, Elephant Origins.
1: Okay. Well, let's see, I've been around a while, so I, there's a few <laughs> things, but I, I will say that I started as a classroom teacher, a science teacher, teaching biology, and then I eventually I ran the environmental education program for San Mateo County schools in California for 11 years, and that serves over 5,000 kids a year with hands-on outdoor experiences in the coastal areas in Redwood Forest of California. And so then I followed my, what would become my husband, who's a professor at University of Montana back in in 1996. And I moved here to Montana and I work now at the University of Montana. We did have a few years in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is how I met Mm -hmm. you at North Carolina State University, working there in between. And it was actually at NC State that I was able to land a grant in partnership with Scott Mills. And we worked on Asian elephants with a US Fish and Wildlife Service grant. And that project was community-based conservation. And so very much related to my prior work in environmental education. This really followed from a sabbatical we had in Asia. We lived in Bhutan, near the India and Bhutan border each other. And Asian elephants move back and forth between the two countries. So there's a transboundary population. And I was very interested in this because originally folks that were for the government of Bhutan had asked me if I could do an educational project while my husband was having his sabbatical work. I needed something to do. My kids were in a village school and I was really interested in starting a project that would be meaningful and have impact rather than just another, you know, stack of lesson plans that we give out Mm -hmm. to people and do workshops. So I really felt that if we're going to make a difference, in this kind of case, with a, with a species that is declining rapidly, it's, this is a globally endangered species, the Asian elephant, Elephus maximus. So I was really interested, and in, with that support from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we were able to fund a transboundary project that involved citizens on both sides of the border and, and groups of people that were for the government as well. And what we did from that is basically a citizen science project. We had folks um, on the ground who would track elephants, what was happening to them. And whenever an elephant died or a person died from conflict with elephants, they took a GPS location. They took photos. They looked at the landscape. We did a lot of mapping Mm -hmm. and we tracked what was happening for a couple of years. And what we found really led to my work today. It was very, much it might have been known by the local people what was happening there was so much conflict and all but to really put it visually on a map and see that wow these numbers of dead elephants like are incredible for such a small geographical area if you extrapolate Mm -hmm. that out to so many places where there's conflict between humans and elephants and and declining habitat, you know, a habitat is getting, is disappearing rapidly with development and it gets degraded when people take things out of the forest, even if it's not done legally, it's happening. So what I was interested in is like, wow, if this rapid decline is happening and these kind of numbers are happening where of elephants dying, then what is this going to look like? I mean, from what we can see, the numbers were so significant that Asian elephants in that part of the world could be gone in 20 years, if the same happening year after year. And that was really a big wake up call for me. But even after spending weeks on end in India each year, especially on the India side of the border, where there was really higher death rates of elephants, Bhutan, very few elephants we're getting killed. Like the population of people is lower. The tolerance seemed much higher because of the population's lower, and there mm-hmm. is also a really strong safety net for people by the government of Bhutan. Where the people lose a lot from elephant depredation or like raiding of their crops, they're really Mm -hmm. supported. There's kind of programs, social programs. On the India side, with such a large population on the front lines of conflict with elephants, it was really hard for people, especially people that don't really understand how to do the proper paperwork involved in getting reimbursed for losses and so on. So what we did from there is, you know, start to think about what could be done long-term to reverse this decline?
0: So these so these elephants, I just want to clarify. So they were being killed because they were raiding people's farms? So like well, retaliation killings?
1: You know, there's a variety of things we found. So if I were mm-hmm. to list those kind of in the most significant ones at the time, so back in around 2012 through 2014 when we started the original project, the number one cause of death we found was, was really poisonings of elephants and then yeah. it started to move towards electrocutions and so when you look at poisons you say okay what was the source you know when they test their bodies so the forest department would fill out a report a veterinarian would come they'd do an autopsy they'd find toxins and often those were agrochemical agrochemicals so but what we found from people, what people observed is that elephants, particularly young elephants are quite curious. So if you're not storing things like urea properly, like one time, a number of elephants in one spot got into some urea, ate it, and a bunch of them died on the spot. So you uh, can't, okay, storage, it may not have been intentional poisoning, but it's just that people are going about their business, doing things, yeah. and then suddenly you lose a lot of elephants or one here, one there until it starts to add up. Electrocutions are kind of different. Now, sometimes it appeared that people had put just tapped live wires and put a wire around, say, a rice field, a rice paddy field, and and then an elephant touches it, they can die. Easily just, they're so, they're sensitive like humans to electrocution, and yet We all know from working with livestock fencing, even in the US, that, you know, you can properly do deterrent fencing to keep things out or to keep animals in, Mm -hmm. that it's safe. And so, you know, that might've been a matter of education and having access to the right kind of supplies to do this fencing. But then again, a solution isn't to fence everything because then the elephants can't move along their natural force of movement between protected areas and forests that remain. So then- What we found is also that occasionally there appeared to be some just conflict, like you might see there was someone had shot an elephant or some spear marks and eventually an infection, an elephant dies. Some were natural causes. And then there was this odd thing where young elephants in particular, really young ones, would fall into these deep, narrow trenches that have been... really since the 1800s with the tea, the tea estates when they Mm -hmm. were established by the British in northeast India. They did these as a way to move water from the monsoon season out of the tea lands when you have kind of flat areas. But the problem is those ditches really weren't easy and especially when it's really wet and muddy in the monsoon season. You know, a small young elephant might try to cross the trench get stuck, the mud starts going down, the mother tries to pull it out, it becomes, wet. Mm-hmm. so we are seeing a high number of those as well each year in, in that region, and thinking, okay, can something be done, and there were some other causes as well, like road hits, train hits, and different things, yeah, so these are, these are the primary things that we were realizing are adding up to significant numbers,
0: yeah, yeah. And, the, of, and this yeah, is,
1: yeah, they're all a type of human elephant conflict,
0: and this is, I just wanted to point out to our audience, this is really different from African elephants, because although there definitely is human elephant conflict and poisoning, by far they're in decline because of poaching. And for Asian elephants, they, they are poached, but not really as much, right? And the females don't have tusks naturally.
1: That's right. The Asian elephant, um, males even, even though they're historically had tusks, there appear to be evolving to be a, a good percentage of them are tuskless entirely. So maybe they were selected for the ones with the large, you know, the, yeah. the significant tusks just started to be picked out of the population from poaching. But also I think it has to do with location. You know, where where are those gangs that do ivory poaching mm-hmm. um, active? And in this part of the world, it's, you know, just perhaps not along those, in those areas. You know yet i mean it doesn't mean it can't happen but more often but right now that is not a primary issue here and there one gets taken for ivory
0: so can you tell us then what elephant origins is and how you got involved in that or how you how you found it as a company yeah.
1: okay so over time i thought i had this idea that certification programs might be a way for it or some kind of positive incentive for tea growers to change at least for their lands and their and the areas that are associated with their tea growing areas because this this is the major use of land outside of protected areas in northeast india was for tea production and so with that basically it took talking to a lot of tea producers even large corporate ones and say what would it take to reduce some of these impacts and really make sure that was happening. They like the idea of a certification program because they said, sometimes that can give you an edge in the marketplace. It won't always give you more money for your product, but it will sometimes put you into the marketplace where otherwise you couldn't grow. Like USDA organic might, for example, get you into certain markets that you wouldn't get otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, a certification needed a name and so on. So I had run it. Well, I was ran across someone who worked for elephant family out of London and this person was kind enough to, to introduce me to the Wildlife-Friendly Enterprise Network. And they do a lot of certification programs around the world that actually benefit wildlife, that are win-win for communities and wildlife. But they were always on a smaller scale, like Gorilla-Friendly Tourism in Africa is one one of the projects they had. More recently, they have Sea Turtle-Friendly Resorts that get certified. They also have a lot of different products, foods and Soaps and different things that get certified that benefit communities that protect their local wildlife across the world. So, I proposed an elephant friendly tea program and that we would actually help them develop criteria that would directly address our findings and those findings that are published and well known that were, you know, contributing to the decline of elephants in the tea growing regions of India. And so that's where so we started, and they they said, "Great, let's do this." And it took us years to actually, you know, pilot pull it together, really make sure it was solid. And now it's as of November two thousand nineteen, the certification program is open and rolling. So
0: that's great. And so, can you explain to us why? tea is not elephant friendly for Asian elephants. Like what, do they come in there and stomp all the right. gardens or do they eat the leaves? What, what happens when they, okay, so when they go into- to
1: move, move from fragments of forest that remain in Northeast India and they just move around. And this is one of the largest tea growing areas on the planet. Mm-hmm. So it's really a lot of tea, a lot of land. And also in Southern India, similar story. There's a, a tea region down there as well. And so as these elephants move around, they don't crush a lot of tea. They're actually very soft-footed and careful. And you'd be surprised even large elephants can move in a line between tea rows and not do a lot of damage. They also don't eat the tea leaves. They're, they're really kind of, you know, to them not palatable. And it was, you know, Mm -hmm. tea was originally a kind of native plant to the region. And so elephants had coexisted with the original Camilla sinensis plant, you know, forever. Right. And coexisting but not really eating it or destroying it in any way so here we have now a cultivated version of the plant and it's the elephants move through but the problem really has to do with these communities that build up around the tea to all the workforce it's huge amount of people a huge number of people that work in tea in northeast india and southern india and so they're encountering like the the home gardens yummy things ready for oh i see yeah then here you have little crop fields outside of the tea gardens. And then you also just have, you know, elephants get attracted to alcohol. There's home brewing happening in people's homes. You know, there's just elephants and en- chance encounters at night with people and so on. And then also just the fact that elephants can be a real bother, they can break things like. I was visiting a, t- a large tea estate in Northeast India a couple of years ago. And someone came running into the building where I was staying at a tea estate manager's home for a couple of days to observe the local elephants. And someone came running in to say, oh, the elephants have broken some pipes, some water pipes. So the elephants are doing damage all the time, messing around, you know, and they're getting into things. And it's always like, oh, I've got to go fix it. But they're a bit hard to work around because they can be quite Dangerous. If there's a large male tusker that's protecting the herd, they can be quite aggressive if especially if they get in the state of must, which is a natural state where they get ready to mm-hmm. breed. They get, you know, a lot of testosterone, they get pretty worked up when people chase them or harass them in any way. And so what we often recommend is, you know, learn the signs of must, which is when there's an oozing coming up the temple of the elephants. Mm-hmm. There's also more aggressive behaviors and really avoid those elephants in particular a herd of mostly females you know you want to keep your distance you don't want to stress them out and make things worse but on the other hand generally people won't be attacked by a bunch of moms and their babies right it's really yeah most attacks are from males in must to be honest and people have many people are killed by elephants so we actually alongside protecting elephants a big part of our work is how do you stay safe and work alongside elephants? What do you need to do?
0: That's great. And so, so the idea is the, the the farmers and the workers all get paid more and then they tolerate am- the elephants in their community. Is that how it works?
1: Well, not exactly. Now, Elephant Origins is my commercial company. I started to okay. those, those first, especially those first farms that go certified elephant family. I thought if we develop a market, and we can talk about that in a bit. But that that mm-hmm. they're just a company that's really pushing this, right? But, but others can be part of this too, and we just want to get it moving, okay? But on the other hand, you've got this situation where the India government sets the wages for a region, for the mm-hmm. world. So we don't actually can't guarantee that the worker is going to get more money for working in a certified elephant friendly farm because those wages are set but what w- what they will find is that if a tea grower participates there is maybe more marketer opportunity they may sell more tea at a general price premium it might make the conditions better for the workforce there might also be a side like one of our requirements with the wildlife friendly enterprise network certification is that mm-hmm. to be certified elephant friendly you also have to be friendly to your workforce and all you can't just you know there can't be poor treatment of the workforce there can't be high-risk things that need yeah. to human trafficking and so on so you know we didn't want to become associated with bigger problems um, that are beyond what we were trying to solve here and, and kind of inadvertently end up supporting problematic practices in other ways either so once a once a tea grower either they're a small grower who you know and you know how they treat their people and they you know Mm -hmm. how things are working and that's great so we're real picky about who we partner with but or they're a larger grower who's already in like a fair trade program or a Mm -hmm. partnership or they otherwise have programs that already address those social problems that are often associated with large agricultural industries around the world and so we really make sure as part of the certification that that has to be checked off first like that's they're screened out they don't work with us yeah. unless they can meet those what we have seen though is that there is pride and there is opportunity international sales of tea tends to bring a higher price if they can hit those larger markets and we've been able to begin to to basically you know, raise awareness about this and it has become internationally interesting to people who buy tea. And so, and it was very interesting because this year recently we won the, Elephant Origins won the Global Tea award with at the world tea expo and really it had That's a lot awesome to, yeah it really had a lot to do with the the certification that we were the ones really pushing that forward and really getting this as our party because we only deal in certified elephant friendly tea and we also are very selective about how we partner so it's pretty exciting that it's you know bringing more opportunity and small farmers that are involved I think see a lot of other benefits for example the first grower to become certified elephant friendly a small grower named Tenzing he really has done well because his farm got so much attention for being certified elephant friendly that he actually has turned it into an ecotourism program as well and that's awesome yeah he's built a tree house people could stay safely up above the elephant corridor and you can sleep up in there and there's like Bedrooms and it's really neat and he's, he's really embraced the opportunity for people to visit and learn about tea, but also learn about elephants in a safe way that doesn't damage the local environment so. It's really pretty awesome that's so cool
0: yeah a lot of times people think when they when they travel and you know they go and see these wild animals a lot of times they imagine going to these national parks and of course there are animals in national parks but so many animals are just in like the communities and and actually i was able to do gorilla trekking in 2005 and i remember they have all these farms right up to the mountains and they're like, frequently the, you'll see the gorillas just in the farms. You don't even have to go into the mountain.
1: No. Yeah, well, that's how this is. And we did an interesting thing. We put up um, a couple of camera traps with the help of Tenzing. And we were seeing what else came in. And it was really amazing, the diversity. Like we saw there were leopards and, you know, of course there's elephants, but there's mm-hmm. also, there were you know, just the variety of species there. Yeah. And we're also seeing like hornbills are roosting in large great numbers. These are highly endangered birds and they're roosting on his property edges there along the forest. And he's also doing we partnered with him initially to do a reforestation project with the local community. Mm-hmm. So he's converting part of his lands into just pure forest. Like he he really sees that you know you can do well with tea, but you can also do well by taking care of the natural environment and people will be more interested in your tea product if biodiversity is protected. There's a certain segment anyway of people, and I think that's a growing segment of people that are really interested in like, what is the impact of the product that they're buying.
0: Yeah, I agree. My, my family owns a store and my brother was sending me articles about that, that especially the younger generations are really caring about the companies that they purchase from and their, their global impact. Yeah.
1: And and I just love it that we, we know the growers that we work with and they're pretty Mm -hmm. darn awesome people. Like each of, each of them is really doing so much good and they're leaders in the industry and maybe they didn't see themselves always that way before, but I think this project has brought a lot of attention and I think others are now want in, you know, we're, we're getting, we're seeing the wildly friendly enterprise network, our partners, you know, along with the university of Montana, they're getting interest from more tea growers in India and even other countries like, Hey, can we do something like this in our
0: country as well? That's great. And how do people, do they apply for the program or do you approach the farmers? How does that work?
1: Well, the, our partners at the Wildlife Friendly Enterprise Network, you know, I was really hands-on in, at the beginning, but really they're the certifying body. Okay. University of Montana does the scientific part. We kind of work on making sure the certification standards stay up with the current findings, the scientific part of that as we study elephants but and pull together results of other, the studies of others. And so what, what's happening is the Wildlife Friendly Enterprise Network has a very um, nice process now where you have an initial application. If you're a tea grower that live, that's working in a, a known elephant movement area, you know, what are... The things that you need to answer initially to just make sure you're kind of say, okay, is it even possible that you would qualify for the program so that screening the initial screening happens. Then the next step is a full you're invited for a full application. And then you have a lot of questions to answer you have to map your site you have to, you know, produce evidence of, you know, elephant movements and impacts in your area, you have to kind of basically provide information on how does the community associated with your tea estate or farm impact the local forests and you know habitat areas because those impacts or even things like plastics that might flow in a river downstream to your tea producing area you know so what are you what are you doing with your waste all of that your your chemicals but we're finding there's a lot of interest in organic from organic growers to kind of eliminate that issue altogether. And then after that, there's an on site audit in India that happens. So it's very thorough. It's by a, another party that's based in India, comes along and goes through a very objective audit process. And then there's a committee that the wildlife friendly enterprise has, and they put, they have board members on that and their staff and that they do as they go and they review the results and the evidence, there's photographic evidence and mapping and so on. And they basically also get some reference checks going in India. And then they're given kind of a preliminary certification if they meet all the standards If they, need. so each time there's been suggestions for some things that needed to be changed or improved before the final before this is all finalized mm-hmm. and so what we've seen is like ditches have been filled that were too deep and narrow we've mm-hmm. seen open tanks that were empty that you know maybe a small elephant could have gotten trapped in so those were filled we've also seen kind of a move towards removing fence allowing elephants to move without as much stress so like keeping them from getting kind of Trapped to buy too much fencing, but actually mapping out like what are the known movements? Let's protect those and let's keep people away mm-hmm. from them. And then also we've seen people kind of they have to have a human elephant conflict management plan for their community of workers, and so. They produce a plan and that's what we help a little bit with that at the University of Montana we've been able to advise on some of the best practices that are known and help them tweak those plans if they're struggling or if there needs to be a training we have been able to some funds We have a fund set up through a nonprofit foundation at our university, and we've been able to do a little bit of help out there as well. to Help them get to the point where they're ready for full implementation of the standards, including their human elephant conflict management system, you know that they would keep up with annually.
0: Cool. And you mentioned that you're so, so University of Montana and Elephant Origins does scientific research as well.
1: Elephant Origins really is the commercial. Okay. See, it's but separate- there's still,
0: but yeah. there's still scientific research as part of the whole.
1: Yeah. So, University of Montana, what uh-huh. we, you know, I also work, so not only do I have this business, but I also work part-time at the University of Montana and partner with others at the university and also beyond the university. And so what we do, and as part of, part of, I'm just part of the team now, but what we're looking at is, you know, next we're looking at coffee. Like, can you look at some of the similar standards for coffee in India and in elephants? And we're just beginning that process. So we're pulling all known research that's been published about coffee and elephants in India to see how many parallels are there similar problems you know that we see there's some differences already but that's being worked on this year because there's been a lot of interest when the coffee growers in india heard about the tea program they're like can't we do this for (laughs) coffee too but it makes a lot of sense that this could grow it also can grow to other countries but right now taking it step at a time you know, pulling together who's working on these issues in coffee land yeah we can't do it all ourselves i only spend six weeks a year in india i cannot do it all, um, nor can the people at the University of Montana. Now, someday, our hope would be to also be able to help bring in more graduate students to do research and so on and, Mm -hmm. and actively support expanding how much work is done on this because you really want to stay on top of what is your impact? Like, not only you know, did we find out about the deaths and what was happening is we also want to see what it, what are the results of change? If we change the ditches or the fencing or the way people behave towards elephants so that stress levels go down and there's less direct conflict between humans and elephants, what does that mean for the population? Mm-hmm. Is it going to stabilize? Is it going to continue to decline? Or are we going to see a little bit of a, a change as you know, more and more tea growers, we're at 7,000, over 7,000 acres are now under Mm -hmm. certification as elephant friendly. And that's all since November of 2019. Not bad given that in March, you know, a pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: But there is interest. And I think, you know, it will, we're a little bit in a slow period because of the pandemic. It's difficult to have site visitations. And there've been a lot Mm -hmm. of on and off shutdowns. And tea is moving still, but it's been also less, you know, predictable. Like it, it things take a little bit yeah. longer. It's sporadic. Sometimes shutdowns create, you know, that you can't ship at any given moment. But I think what we're finding is people around the world are staying home more. They're drinking more tea. So it's not like tea isn't selling. It might <laughs> right. actually be a little more of a problem with supply at moments,
0: you know. Yeah. And so I have a lot of aspiring wildlife biologists in my audience. Are you t- are you taking graduate sc- students currently for this project, or is this something you'd like to do in the near future?
1: Yeah, well, there's not funding. If someone came with a fund of their own funding, I don't take graduate students. I'm an outreach specialist, mm-hmm. but but I do know Scott Mills. He's my husband, but he's also a wildlife professor at University of Montana. So he's always looking. But there is no current. Grant funding, we are actually applying for some grants that may we hope will pan out. But on the other hand, you know, many universities have potential to partner on this project. I mean, there are a number of groups that work on elephants and Asian elephants specifically, there's certainly a need and it certainly um, an exciting opportunity. What I do have is internships. So right now I have a NASA fellowship for myself and for an undergraduate student at University of Montana. And we're but we're working on mapping of the landscape in this first region that we're working in, Assam, India. We're really getting down to fine detail using various satellite imagery and really kind of narrowing down to like what what specific areas is connectivity of the landscape a problem for elephants and really kind of getting down to those landscape features because this appears to be some bottlenecks for movement for elephants that are creating Mm -hmm. more pressure on human developments you know where you basically if you are channeling elephants into areas where people live Whereas if you might be able to over here restore some habitat and connect the landscape where where it just needs a little bit of help. So that's what we're looking at in the in the next year is how to how can we help advise and even bring some resources. To communities. There is a community in Assam, India right now, the Green Valley Society for the Protection of Na- Nature. We are about to partner with them. They just got permits from the Forest Department in India. We want to help them um, raise money for restoring a pilot site in a protected area that had been heavily degraded, but it's right on the edge of a lot of tea growing zones. And that it appears that the elephants are coming in to raid crops because they're kind of lacking resources in the protected area. We want to see if it makes a difference. And because each tree is not very expensive to have someone grow and plant and protect for a few years until it's well established. It's one of like, you get a lot of bang for your buck and a lot of, even school kids here in the US have helped us raise hundreds of dollars to sponsor trees, but we'll keep going. We have a fund set up, we'll just keep going and you know help these communities plant their own forest for elephants and have some pride in that. But we, we know it takes initial resources that they may not have right away, but in time I think they can perpetuate these products in these projects themselves long term.
0: That's so great. I, I love what you're doing because I think a lot of people when they think of helping wildlife and conservation, they just always think of protected areas and the separation of of humans and and animals. And you know, we live on a planet where animals are in our backyards and, and in our in our corporations and fields and and we have to live alongside them
1: And we, what we were looking at is like research is showing us that elephants are spending more time out of outside of these protected yeah inside them so the truth is we can't ignore private lands as part of the conservation picture we also know that an elephant in a degraded, protected area. The reason it's degraded is people are going, letting their cows roam in there, spreading mm. weeds that are invasive yeah. and taking over the forest floor. Forests aren't regenerating as naturally as they could have. So we're, this is really an uphill battle, but weed removal of some really tough invasives is going to be key to success. Also to get people to keep their cows out of the forest. And then the third mm. part, as I see it, is firewood removal that's not an endless thing. You can't you can't just keep taking and taking without planting and restoring. Right. And so it, even though people are, you know, it's really challenging to live in these areas without a lot of economic opportunity. You need to cook your food and all. But what we're finding is the tea producers more and more are supplying alternative fuels that will help keep people from removing wood from the forest. You need that decaying happen the soil to replenish you can't just remove all the down wood and expect the forest to restore itself so there are a right. lot of things, a lot of pieces happening at, at the same time that are very hopeful
0: in my view definitely okay so we've talked this whole time about elephants and the the plantations can you tell us about the tea like what does it taste like what products do you have
1: yeah, well, I'll tell you. Okay, I have a bag here. So Yay. let me just so we just started with kind of a simple first product because we were pretty new company. And so we kind of thought, well, we're not gonna we're gonna see what people like. So we're gonna start with black Assam tea. And this is kind of your best known black tea, you know, typical good and bold. It's but this particular one in this bag, you see the little certified elephant friend. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that logo, whenever you see that logo, you'll know that it's certified elephant friendly. It's guaranteed. This one's organic, even though it doesn't say so, because it's from a small farm. We do independent testing in a lab just to make sure mm-hmm. that none of these chemicals exist. They don't. But this is just helping a small farmer. tending the first one, and his tea is super smooth and good. And then, and then we're expanding. We're about to add a green tea from another grower that's coming board. It's organic. And we're going to... know be able to keep adding more products but let me show you one we created this is a new fairly new one it's a chai and so this is a chai Mm. blend and one of the ideas i have with this that we're just about to launch is a chai kit that where you blend your own spices with tea so we basically take the black assam tea and we're gonna have a little spice kit where you can pick out the different spices and blend your own type and kind of play with the different ingredients. But what's interesting about these spices, and I really wanna build this and help communities is the kind of spices that go into chai typically, also we found deter elephants. Hmm. They're not really inviting elephants in to eat them such as chili peppers and cinnamon and cardamom and ginger and black pepper, things that go in chai spice Elephants aren't that interested in it. It's a little bit, they're sensitive, you know. And if it uh-huh. has certain chemicals like capsicum, like in chili peppers, elephants, ugh, they don't want it typically. Okay. Now, sometimes elephants get curious and will destroy. You know. <laughs> but what we were thinking is how neat if we could grow additional opportunities for communities to sell things, yeah. help them kind of get off some of the conflict crops or at least have an alternative. So if they lose a lot of their rice to elephants one year, maybe they'll have a backup to help them economically. Cause not everyone gets to be a tea picker or a tea plantation worker. There's a lot of lack of opportunity economically. And, you know, so we're trying to look at that. So this kit we're about to launch this season right now, actually it's starting to go out as of this weekend is um, a, ch- a chai kit for the holidays and through through valentine's day these kits will include two handmade chai clay cups from india they're actually made in india and the little spice kit in the black tea and so they c- and then a- some recipes and then you can also create your own original recipe and share it we'll share anyone's recipes if they find that Because different parts of India, we find, you know, different types of chai as Uh favorite and what you prefer. So what we're going to do also is continue to grow our wholesale bulk tea sales, because where you really get the volume is selling lots of tea to other companies that could put it under their own label or in their own specialty loose tea shop, you know. And what we are finding is we've had a lot of interest in that program and but people wanna see more variety. If you wanna see more types of green tea and white tea and oolong teas and black tea and all that's available now in certified elephant friendly farms. So it's really a matter of investing and getting it here Mm in bulk so that we can then then get it out to those buyers. But the really fun part is now a couple of big brands have embraced certified elephant friendly tea. So lots of small companies, which we truly appreciate have been doing it Mm -hmm. a little while. But very recently, both Republic of Tea and Traditional Medicinals, two major brands, and you'll find them in, for example, Whole Foods across the U.S., have both elephant-friendly certified lines of tea now. And so that is a very big, exciting development when you have where consumers can almost in any city go find, like, where can I find elephant-friendly certified tea? And then, of course, we sell elephant origins tea online. So if you want to go direct to the source here, you know, you can buy from our selection too. We tend to try to support the smaller farmers that don't have the big volume capacity. That's where we tend to focus a bit of our sales effort. And then the larger brands tend to source from the the larger estates. Yeah, and
0: I... I ordered mine online. You can get it at elephantorigins.com and I'll put the link in the show notes and they have different kinds. They have whole loose leaf and then they have little pyramid bags too. So if you don't have a, have yeah. a, what, what are they called? I need to get one. I forgot what they're right.
1: called. Yeah.
0: Anyway. Yeah. yeah.
1: What's funny is people may not even realize you can just put in your coffee maker, a paper filter or even oh, yeah. pressed, in a French press, you don't even need paper. You can actually put loose tea into a French press and make tea just perfectly easily that way. Or you can run hot water through a coffee maker right through the filter paper, just put the loose tea in there. Okay, I'll do that. People don't always realize it's, it's as easy as making coffee. Somehow there are people think it's a big mystery, right? You know, making tea. But what you want to do for the ideal steep, though, of course, you know, the timing and the temperature. Some people get really particular about their teas. And I will say like the black is very tolerant, you know, it, if you over steep mm-hmm. it, it doesn't go bitter, this kind, you know, if you, however you make it, it's awesome. Other teas can be a little more sensitive, like green teas, sometimes you want to keep the temperature a little bit lower. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to <laughs> like, have hot boiling water and then steep it a long time because you might get some little off flavors, but green tea has a little more sensitivity. It's not been hmm. processed as much. It's, you know, and so on. But I don't know if everyone realizes how healthy tea is for you. There are so many phytochemicals that actually fight cancer. I mean, research shows that they're phytochemicals that fight cancer. They help build your immune system support. They're you know it's basically tea is a superfood if you if you don't realize it and so it's something mm-hmm. to consider and a lot of people are starting to cook with tea or make cocktails with tea it's getting it's getting more and more popular it's kind of doing what coffee did at one time it's called like the third wave well that's what tea yeah. is starting to do now in the US and i suggest that people try Try a lot of kinds, like i just discovered oolongs and I'm like, my gosh, how did I not know about oolong teas? But they're kind of in between green and black, but they have a, a character and they can be very varied, but I have found some, that are just so fabulous. So we're gonna offer oolong soon through Elfin Origins. And then we have some flavor blends. We do, we try different things, mm-hmm. seasonally, so, you know, have some fun. Like right now we have one called Lemonlicious. It's like a lemon black tea. And then we have the chai, uh, You know, pre-made chai or you can make your own. Mm -hmm. We also have a chocolate mint and we have four bags left of this rose tea. That's really good. It's, we're almost sold out, but that one was very popular at the market. wow! We're going to bring on some more over time as well.
0: Yeah, I am definitely on a tea journey cuz I can no longer drink coffee. So, I feel like it's kind of like wine. I'm I I went gluten-free a couple of years ago, so I'm like learning about wine. Whereas my husband was like a big beer drinker, so I knew about beer. And I used to like be a really heavy coffee drinker, and now I'm off coffee and I'm into tea. So, I'm experimenting with all the different kinds and flavors and everything.
1: You know, it's funny. I've really gotten picky about tea now. I was not when I got into this. I was <laughs> nervous, but now it's interesting how your palate develops. And now, you know, I can try a lot of teas, but I'm like, I need my Elephant Origins black and <laughs> I, you know, green from this particular. Yeah, but I I enjoy it because my my palate is going to be different than your palate or someone else's. So everyone kind of you know this is why we we give out pace because we give out samples. So if anyone wants some samples, you can write me, you can contact me through the website, but you know, you think about it. If you find your tea, that's the one you want in your cabinet all the time. Yeah. Right? The one that's are fond of. It's kind of like coffee that way. I'm picky about that too. I have
0: my, my <laughs> coffee. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Before we go, do you have anything else you want to leave the audience with any final words?
1: Yeah. I think I'd just like to say that if you, if you feel passionate about wildlife and you really want to make a difference just know you know there are a lot of paths to go but really for the biggest impact I have begun to realize that to, to make change happen on the ground is these little things you know one cup of tea mm-hmm. sold at a time it's who is on the front lines of conservation can we support them maybe it's sponsoring a tree one tree that gets planted for a dollar you know but those Mm -hmm. little acts have ripple effects. And that's what I'm finding is if you invest in the people on the ground, it will pay off again and again. They keep on reinvesting and it grows, but it's giving them the ability to do so. And that's been the hardest part of this journey. So thank you. I mean, I appreciate anyone who's willing to do any piece of this to help out. And I wish you all the best. And please feel free to write me or contact me if you wanna learn more about Asian elephants. We're gonna try to, you know, produce more out there education and you know give updates as we go so we're gonna, we have a newsletter you can go to our website elephantorigins.com sign up for a newsletter by just entering your email address and we're going to start we're starting a newsletter in 2021 to kind of update people on what's happening on the ground now that we've gotten past the initial startup phase there's some really cool things you might want to hear about and how elephants
0: are benefiting that's awesome i love that well, thank you so much. And I hope you have a happy holiday and, of course, the rest of your day. <laughs> All Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks to Lisa once again for coming on the podcast. That was such a fun conversation. Again, you can purchase the tea at elephantorigins.com. It's fantastic tea, the holidays are here, it makes a great gift, a great stocking stuffer, and you can feel good about buying from this company. They have a Facebook page, which is Elephant Origins, obviously, (laughs) sorry, and they have an Instagram, which is at Elephant Origins, and a Twitter handle, which is, I believe, at Elephant Origins too. Let me double check that. Yeah, at Elephant Origins. So make sure you support them and all their social media. Lisa is a super approachable person. So like you, she said, if you have any questions, you can contact her directly or probably through the social media. Also, when she talks about Scott Mills in this podcast, Scott Mills is a big deal. He is a big deal in wildlife biology. He is a really accomplished, revered professor. He's done a lot of really great work on the coat color change of snowshoe hairs in relation to climate change. So if you're interested in becoming a wildlife biologist, he is a great person. He would be he would be a fantastic advisor. His lab just does really cool work. You should look into him. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you have a fantastic day today and be kind to each other, be kind to wildlife, and buy elephant friendly tea.